Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode six of Remarvel, where we're already going off format. Uh, instead of taking a look at one book in the uh, vast uh, and deep Marvel universe, uh, we're going to take a little step back here. We're going to do something a little off the cuff. Uh, if you're uh, following along with other shows on this channel, You'll know a few weeks ago I did, uh, in lieu of a normal episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths, I uh, took a look at uh, at my time, my life and times as a Superman fan. You know, I uh, just went through my entire fan chronology, and uh, it was it was pretty well received. And uh, to be completely honest, I had a heck of a good time doing it. I find it's not terribly often you get to actually, you know, put your memories into words. You know. Um, I think that's uh, one of the perks or benefits of uh, sitting here at my desk talking to myself for hours and hours at a time. That uh, it uh, affords me the opportunity to uh, to just reflect and uh, to put memories into words, and to do so with a, with a with a semblance of chronology, where I can actually you know follow the steps here. And uh, going to do that today. Um, but uh, since this is a Marvel show, we're going to be taking a look at my life and times as an X-Men fan. Uh, it's no surprise if you've been listening to this show, uh, I've got quite a thing for the X-Men. And uh, they've always kind of been, well, up until a few years ago, they've always been my kind of comics safe space, uh, as cringy as that might sound. It's uh, always the, the you know family of books I could go to, and I knew that whatever it was, it was going to be something that I could... Uh, if not entirely enjoy, it's something I could find comfort in. And uh, up until a few years ago, that was always the case. Uh, right now, I'm trying my uh, best to get back into it. It looks like uh, with these new Dawn of X books, it's a decent enough re-jumping on point. And, uh, you know, before we get into the you know the walkthrough here, I, I did pick up the latest two issues that hit this week. That was X-Force volume whatever the hell it is number one and uh, new mutants volume whatever the hell that is number one and uh i i enjoyed them both um i i don't know if it's just a novelty of not being a dc book that's making it so enjoyable uh but i'm having a good time and i i was a little worried about x-force because uh that one's being written by uh, benjamin percy who wrote probably some of the worst teen titans i've ever read and uh his x-force was okay uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I am looking forward to uh, the next issue. So that's where I stand with the new books here. Um, and uh, there is another reason why I want to do this little, uh, you know, life and times of an X-Men fan here, because uh, I've got a uh, pretty big project uh, in the planning stages right now that if you're a uh, keen listener of the program, you're, uh, prob you probably know exactly what I'm talking about here. I have uh, threatened it a time or two before, but... Uh, finally gonna be putting that into, uh, into place pretty soon. Uh, I'm gonna have a bit more free time with the, uh, Action Comics Weekly grind coming to a close in the next couple weeks, so figure rededicate to, uh, to this X-Men project here. I've got a lot of the pieces in place and, uh, found a lot of, a lot of great and talented folks who are interested in, uh, coming along for the ride, so... I think it'll be something to look out for. It's going to be a lot of fun, and in the interest of, you know, just setting the table and, and laying a foundation, I figure just to give a one-stop shop for if anybody is interested on the off chance that they are, just knowing where I come from as an X-Men fan and 
uh, why I might have certain perspectives and why I might have certain opinions and, uh, you know, just a one-stop shop that I can point to. If I ever make a reference on another program, I could just say, okay, if you want to know anything about what my thoughts are on the X-Men, you can go to this one episode instead of going, you know, in the middle of this episode and beginning of that episode and the end of this episode. It's all one-stop shop right here. And uh, in, in, in saying that, uh, some of these earlier stories will be something you've probably heard before if you're following along. So I'm going to do my best to make those as quick and as painless as possible before getting into all new stuff, just so I don't have to, you know, send people around. <laughs> and, I, and I say this like an idiot, like people actually care what my thoughts are on this stuff, but, uh, you know, sometimes you have to humor yourself in order to stay sane. So, uh, you know, the quick and dirty catch-up here for my earliest days here, and this is stuff that I have discussed in the last several episodes of Remarvel here, I came into the X-Men comics uh Kind of by accident I, I'd love to say that They instantly You know I, I instantly identified with them Because I saw myself As an outsider And all that kind of stuff That you know Sounds good When uh, when you're like a creator And you're being interviewed About why you love The X-Men so much it, it usually comes down To something like that And uh, while I was Kind of an outsider That's not what brought me To the X-Men It was uh, really by accident I was in a comic shop Digging through back issue bins Looking for uh Issues of the epic comics ElfQuest And this was like a year into the uh, X-Men Volume 2 So like right after Claremont left Several months afterwards um, I just uh, saw an issue It was issue 13 X-Men Volume 2 number 13 The cover caught my eye And I bought it That was my first X-Men comic And for the longest time I didn't look back I just became an X-Men fan In the months that followed The X-Men books uh, went into a crossover The Executioner's Song Which... Necessitated my buying three more X-Men titles So suddenly I was buying, uh, you know, a large part of the family of books Which was the first time I'd ever done something like that Or even considered doing something like that I never, you know, when you're when you're an outsider looking in You don't really know the, uh, you know, the ebb and flow of, uh, of comics retail, I guess and, and the understanding that these stories leak into other titles, you know So that was like a learning experience And, uh it just became the habit from that point on uh, You know, you, you kind of fall for these characters when you're in a crossover Which is exactly why they do crossover So you do expand, you know, your reader, your readership or, uh, or your wallet, I suppose Is probably the most uh, prevalent cause of those things But uh, it's exactly what I did And before I knew it, I was reading, you know, the entire X-Men line Except for those expensive books like, you know, Wolverine and Excalibur but uh, going from there, we went through the Age of Apocalypse Where, again, there was a little bit of an explosion And I had to buy more and more comics And uh, they come back from the Age of Apocalypse And we have some more new titles And uh, I kept up with all that The miniseries kept up with all that And as I'd mentioned uh, several times before uh, It was with X-Men Volume 2, number 45 It was an uh, extra-sized book with a gimmick cover I stopped buying X-Men comics. I stopped buying comics altogether because of the uh, price point. Uh, the sticker shock there kind of made me take pause, and it made me realize that since we were getting an overpriced book on a just a random issue of a, of a comic, that uh, Marvel, DC, whoever they could they could do that to us any month of the year, uh, and without a, without good reason, in my opinion, without good reason. So. That's where I checked out, and I was gone for uh, about two years 
in that time, I, I still cared about the characters. I still wanted to know what was going on in the stories. Um, a friend of mine, uh, I had stayed over at his house uh, probably senior year, and he had a bunch of comics on the shelf, and it had been a little while since I'd looked at comics, and uh, they all had the word Onslaught on the cover. And I remember reading a little bit about Onslaught right after the Age of Apocalypse, but never really gave it a second thought. Didn't think it was going to lead to, you know, something as huge as it wound up leading to. And I remember asking my friend about it, you know, to explain Onslaught to me, you know, sit me under the learning tree and tell me what's going on here. And uh, that's when I found out that that it t- all tied into the X-Trader subplot, which I had long forgotten about at this point. And back then, you know, I really didn't consider that uh, the that comic creators were kind of just flying by the seat of their pants. I, I always gave them the benefit of the doubt as though these were, you know, long cons. You know, they were really taking us for a ride and... Uh, they had these endings uh, all planned out, so I, I just thought it was kind of like masterful. It's like, wow, that was something. That was just like a little bug in the back of your in the back of your mind that uh, you know that these things are all leading somewhere, and it almost made me want to come back. And uh, I remember flipping through some more of his stuff and uh, saw this guy on the X Men, young young dude with white hair, very long white hair though, and I'm like, oh, who's this guy? <laughs> and he tells me. He's like, oh, that's a that's Joseph, but it's really Magneto. But they call him Joseph because he's younger and he was raised in a in a. They found him in an orphanage or whatever, or in a church or nunnery or something. <laughs> that was about all I had to hear. I'm like, okay, never mind. I'm done. I don't need to come back to this anytime soon. It's funny how I. That's kind of like the civilian reaction to a lot of comic stories. Like if I. If I were to tell my wife about any of these things, she'd be like, "Okay, go talk talk to someone else. Go, you know, write write a blog post or something. Get out of my face, you know." But uh, and that's exactly how I treated my friend there. He's just like, "Oh, that's Joseph, but it's Magneto, but it's not really Magneto, but it is Magneto, but he doesn't know he's Magneto." It was just a, <laughs> it was just enough to make me n- not really feel bad about dropping out. But uh, you know, the onslaught story just seemed like. The, the next evolution from the Age of Apocalypse, you know, because the Age of Apocalypse kind of just raised the bar on everything I thought of about, you know, an overarching story. And then Onslaught, you know, that, that just grew even outside the X-Books and included the entire universe. So I thought that was just really awesome. And not having read it, clearly, I thought it was, like, just really cool. And I, I wanted to know more about it. Granted, that's a... <laughs> One of those monkey paw wishes, I suppose, because once I did find out what it was all about, it was kind of, you know, uh, enough, you know. <laughs> I didn't really need to know all that much more. Um, you know, a few months after this, uh, my family moved across country, and I've told that story a couple times on the air, and I wouldn't get back into comics for a few months. I uh, shared this story just just a couple weeks ago, actually. Uh, I was in a comic shop in the mall uh, in hopes of putting in an employment application. And while I was there, I looked on the wall and I came across a couple of books, uh, X-Men Volume 2, number 74, and X-Force number 71, I think it was 71. But it was the first road trip one, the the one we discussed a few weeks ago uh, in the archives. And uh, that's what kick-started me back into uh, comics in a big way. And and, uh, I think that kind of catches us up to... Everything that I've already shared. So, moving forward, um, I spent the next several months, maybe even over a year, uh, collecting everything that I'd missed. 
And uh, there were a couple of books that I had trouble getting my hands on And one of them was just a random issue of Uncanny X-Men It was the X-Men in space The cover had uh, Joseph, (laughs) Magneto Joseph uh, Standing on an asteroid It was Joe Maggiora art It was an awesome cover But I just couldn't track the thing down And and the other one I had trouble finding was the big one You know, Uncanny X-Men 350 And uh, that's the big trial of Gambit with... uh, Spat and Grovel or whoever they were Those, those, like that girl and her little dinosaur friend Or whatever the hell it was But uh, that was one that I really wanted to read Um, Just because of all, everything coming together You know, the promise of everything coming together And it also marked uh, new creative teams uh, on the book Uh, Scott Lobdell doesn't even get a a credit on that book I think that's, I think Stephen Siegel was on Uncanny With Joe Kelly on uh, X-Men Volume 2 I might be mistaken, but I think that's the way it was. The first actual issue of Uncanny I bought when I came back was uh, Uncanny X-Men 355, and it was a really strange gimmick that they were running in this book. It was a big brouhaha with Alpha Flight, and uh, they basically told the same story in this issue of Uncanny X-Men and an issue of Alpha Flight, but they did it from two different points of view. So you could see the entire scene occurring just from two different perspectives. I thought that was a really cool uh, really cool thing to do. And it led to me buying Alpha Flight. Because I, I had never read Alpha Flight before. I think I had a couple in the collection, but it was never a it was never a book that I really sought out. I knew of their history and I also knew that they were kind of on the fringes of the X family. Uh, I was you know, I've said it before, I, I was a big Usenet guy uh, throughout the 90s. Uh, was, you know, hung out on the, the was it, R-A-C-M-X book, whatever the hell it was. The X-Books uh, Usenet uh, news group. And uh, they would always cover Alpha Flight there. And since, you know, I looked at these people as being, you know, the, the purest of fans uh, because they were online. They were in my computer. I could see them. I, I always just looked at their opinions as a sort of gospel, you know, and if they say Alpha Flight's part of the X family, then Alpha Flight's part of the X family. I just couldn't afford to buy it because that was one of those $1.75 books, so it uh, it stayed alongside Wolverine and Excalibur, and it never really crossed over, so it wasn't like a must-read, or even for, like, completionist's sake, it was just kind of on the fringes there. But uh, it became uh, one of my favorites. I, that second volume of Alpha Flight, which was uh, another Stephen T. Siegel book, I, I just fell in love with it. I thought it was just a, a really good story. It was a mystery story. There was a lot of weird stuff going on in Department H. And uh, you had these new characters. Uh, the, they were all mutants, I believe. Uh, one of them was like the son of Eunice the Untouchable. Uh, actually, I think two of them were. I think they were brothers. I'm. It's been forever since I read it. But... Uh, I remember having a lot of fun with that, and that led to me actually going back and picking up the first run of Alpha Flight throughout the years, and uh, that's since become a book that I I like popping in on every now and again to uh, revisit, uh, especially the, you know, as cliche as it may sound, the early John Byrne stuff uh, is a source of sort of comfort food for me. It's funny, earlier this week I actually sent out a tweet asking if people felt that whether or not Alpha Flight was part of the X family of books because of uh, this new project I'm working on, uh, trying to decide whether or not it would have an Alpha Flight element to it. And the responses came back overwhelmingly that uh, Alpha Flight is, in fact, 
uh, considered part of the X family of books. And I, I agree. I agree. I just don't know how wide that's. You know, I, I never consider my opinion to be a majority opinion. I always think that anything I think is instinctively wrong. That's uh, part of my Catholic upbringing, I guess. I don't know. But uh, I, I just wanted to float it out there, see what people thought. And people are, you know, people like their alpha flight. And I, I'm, I'm okay with that because uh, I, I think that's a fun... That's a fun run to discuss, especially since it is on the fringes. And uh, being able to compare and contrast with the rest of the, you know, mainline X-Men books, I think that'll be a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting deep into that as, uh, as this project moves forward. So, back to the timeline here. I'm back into X-Men comics, and uh, before I know it, I'm the very definition of a Marvel zombie. If it has the Marvel logo on it, I'm buying it. My standing order at the shop was one of everything. And, uh, you know, that's one of those cliche comic collector things, but it literally was one of everything. I didn't care what it was. I didn't care who it was. It could have been it could have been a Silver Surfer one-shot, and I could care less about the Silver Surfer, but it could have been a Silver Surfer one-shot, and it had Marvel on it, so I wanted it. It could have been one of the manga tie-ins. I wanted it. It didn't matter what it was. It could have been a reprint of something I already had five copies of. didn't matter. Everything that had the Marvel logo on it, I had to have in my collection and on my pull list. And, I mean, there, there might have been... I, I'm trying to think here if there were more hits than misses or more misses than hits, but uh, I think if not for that reckless spending and uh, irresponsible reckless spending, I would have missed out on a lot of things that I that I do enjoy. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of, like, stuff like that Slingers series that spun out of the Spider-Man Identity Crisis. I wouldn't have bought that if I wasn't, you know, a rabid collector, <laughs> you know? And, and I actually quite like that. I think that's a, that was a lot of fun. Uh, of course, there were also things like like the MC2 stuff, uh, the uh, J2, the Son of the Juggernaut, and Wild Thing, and uh, Fantastic Five. Uh, you know, stuff that, looking back, I hate calling anything garbage, but it, it just wasn't that great. Um, I would buy every miniseries, every X-Men miniseries, every... It didn't matter. Like Spider-Man, every, every damn book I was getting... Um, you know, Bishop had his own ongoing series around this time. Uh, I remember there was a, a like a Team X two thousand book that was supposed to explain how he got from the Shi'ar back to wherever, and then thrown into the far flung future. And I, you know, I was salivating for that because it was just part of the lore and part of my rabid <laughs> purchasing habits. Uh, Gambit had his own series. Um, Deadpool, of course, had his own series. Cable was still going strong. Uh, X-Man was uh, still a thing that was coming out. Uh, Generation X. Uh, you know, all the all the books were coming out. X-Men Unlimited. And I don't feel bad about calling that one garbage, because that one is garbage. Uh, Quicksilver had a series. Maverick had a series. Uh, it was just insane how many... How many, how many characters just had their own series. And... Uh, so maybe it was more misses than hits. Uh, maybe that clears it up a little bit more. Um, Thunderbolts. I wouldn't have tried Thunderbolts if I wasn't uh, rampantly buying things. And that, that I love that. That's a really good series. Okay, so maybe the misses outnumber the hits, but the hits were so good that they justify the misses. If that makes any sense. I'm just trying to run things through my head. Uh, uh, of the uh, one-shots and miniseries, uh, X-Men related, one I remember... 
<laughs> vividly is one called uh, X-Men Declassified, which was supposed to um, solve a lot of that dangling plot threads. And I remember it was advertised as such. It was, you know, this is going to blow the lid off of all the, uh, all the unknowns and all the um, nebulous mysteries in the X-Universe, and it kept getting delayed. This thing got delayed like six months and I remember thinking, it's like, oh, this is going to be great when it comes out. And it came out, and it was crap. It was just nothing. <laughs> it was like Gambit and Wolverine and maybe Kitty Pride like, broke into, like, some sort of warehouse, and they found a bunch of files, and nothing made sense. It was just not great. Uh, speaking of not great, X-Factor ended and became Mutant X. Which uh, saw Havoc being thrown to another dimension Where he's married to Madeline Pryor and has a son And it's all these twisted versions of the X-Men Really not good Uh, It started off okay I remember thinking like the first three or four issues I was pretty psyched for it Thought it was a lot of fun And then it just fell to pieces And this is another, uh, you know, Usenet deal One of my favorite uh, comic Critics and reviewers of all time Is a fellow by the name of Paul O'Brien He does uh, the X-Axis Which was a weekly uh, It would show up like Sunday afternoon on Usenet And that's Arizona time So I don't know what time it is uh, He's over in uh, in Europe uh, in, in Somewhere in, in Western Europe But uh, he got to the point where he could no longer review the book It got that bad Where he would just put a little He would do a little capsule blurb <laughs> Basically repeating that the book was terrible And, oh boy, it was It was not good at all I think it it ended with, like, everybody being bit by Dracula And uh, the United States going to war with Canada And the moon getting blown up And it was just not good Uh, Havoc would wind up getting thrown back into the, you know, real Marvel Universe at the end of it But, uh, brutal, painfully brutal uh, to read that um, sticking with Usenet for a little bit, um, another thing that, one of the things that wasn't so great about Usenet is that you could be spoiled on things, and around the turn of the century, uh, they were teasing that they were going to, they were going to pay off a very long, uh, lingering, uh, dangling plot thread, uh, concerning a concept called the Twelve. Now, this was something that was mentioned only a handful of times, like in the mid to late 80s. And it was kind of hinted that, like, this was like the next evolution of mutants, and among them would be like Franklin Richards. He would be like the main, the main guy, or the, or or at least he'd be, you know, featured prominently. And uh, I remember reading about that on Usenet for years. Uh, that was always one of those things that would come up. It was almost like a running joke. It's like, oh, maybe we'll find out about the twelve. Maybe we'll find out about the twelve, and then people would, because I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a very curious guy, and I, I wanted to know what this twelve was, because I wasn't reading the comics in the '80s, and I, this was before back issues had become affordable, like they kind of are now. So I wasn't buying '80s books, especially '80s X books, because those were very expensive, and I didn't know anything about anything. So I learned everything through Usenet, and. As we were getting closer to this possibility that the Twelve were going to be revealed, I just got hyped, you know? You get, uh, you get really into it, you get, it like, takes over like a tidal wave, because you you think you're going to experience a, uh, like a little piece of history here, something that's 15 years in the making, they're going to pay it off, and I'm going to be there for it, and going to be there in the, in the front row, and uh, 
It was a dud. It came out and it was crap. Well, not crap, but uh, it just wasn't what anybody was expecting. Instead of it being the next evolution or like some sort of a elite group of X or mutants, it became like these were the 12 mutants that Apocalypse needs to power a battery or some crap. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't the greatest. But uh, back to Usenet, um, they had this strict no-spoiler uh, thing on Usenet, which was great. And so anytime anybody did spoil something, their post would immediately be deleted. Which is all well and good until you realize that someone could possibly, potentially spoil a revelation like this in the title of their blog po- or the, of their message board post. So you open up your news group and all of a sudden you see like Cyclops, comma, X-Man, comma, uh, Living Monolith, comma. And you're like, oh, man, you, you realize you were just spoiled. <laughs> you know, you realize, crap, I just saw who the 12 is right there. And, uh, you know, you can't you can't delete everything. And unfortunately, you can't delete your your own memory. So I went into the 12 knowing who the 12 were going to be because I saw it spoiled for me on Usenet. Um, if it were a greater, if it were a better story or even a decent story, I, I probably would be a little bit more uh, disappointed. But this is the uh, this is the storyline that produced an issue of Cable that was so bad nobody claims writership of it. Cable number seventy five, you know, uh, I think it was like uh, Joe Pruitt is on there. F- uh, uh, he's credited, but he blames Rob Liefeld, and Liefeld <laughs> blames Pruitt. Nobody will admit to having written this book because it was, uh, well, it wasn't very good. The uh, cable number 75 was, we were promised that there was going to be like this big epic showdown between he, he and Apocalypse that they had been building for years at this point, and it, uh, it really didn't come down to a whole lot. It's been forever since I read that, but uh, if I'm remembering right, like the issue starts with cable chained to a wall. And it ends with cable chain to a wall, so it was like one of those where it didn't even really need to meet it, to read it, to uh, it didn't even need to be a part of the story because you just you, you wound up right where you started again, and uh, very disappointing, especially since that cable book had improved just so much under uh, Joe Casey, and and we'll be talking a little bit more about Joe Casey as we move forward, but uh, he really did a number on cable and uh, made that book worth reading. Uh, really humanized Cable instead of just being like this, this you know hard nosed soldier. He became a, a more of a well rounded character and uh, became like a, one of those high points of uh, of my reading month, especially when he was paired with the artist uh, Jose Ladrone, who had who was a very evocative of Kirby, but in a more uh, modern way. And uh, like it wasn't just pure Kirby pastiche; it was a uh, very Kirby inspired, but it still felt new, still felt fresh, and uh, I, I think that that Cable book, uh, I don't think it was, I don't think it was ever better than that. It was a really, really good run, and just the fact that they, the blow off was uh, such a dud, <laughs> it hurt it all the more. Um, and you know, the books here, they were kind of flailing, um, and uh, it was rumored, because Chris Claremont was working for Marvel again, he was writing Fantastic Four, and his Fantastic Four is, you know, it's going to sound weird, 
I've read a lot of Fantastic Four, hundreds of issues of Fantastic Four, but I do have a particular fondness for the Claremont run because it feels like (laughs) X-Men. And, I mean, clearly it's going to. Uh, It felt a lot like like X-Men. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, with him back, you know, in the Marvel tent, I think a lot of us realized it was just a matter of time before he'd come back to the X-Books. And uh, there were even rumors, and I'm I'm pretty sure these rumors were confirmed, that uh, he ghost-wrote a few issues of X-Men uh, that Alan Davis was credited with. And they say that when you read them, it's obvious. Um, it wasn't obvious to me, at least not at the time. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't have near as much uh, experience with Claremont at that point. So maybe if I reread it today, it'll be... You know, it'll jump right out at me, but uh, but suffice it to say, we were all, you know, pretty sure they were going to announce his return pretty quick, and uh, they did that. They did just that. They uh, they brought Chris Claremont back for, it was issue 100 of uh, X-Men Volume 2. That was his official return, you know, the ghostwriting, you know, notwithstanding. I don't remember exactly the number of Uncanny that he took over, but uh, he was writing the two main books again. And... Oof. You know, there's that saying about not being able to go home again, and I think that that's. I think, sadly, I think it's true more often than it's false, and that was kind of the case with uh, with Chris Claremont here. His uh, stories were just so obtuse. Um, I mean, I I had been reading for a long time at this point, and I didn't I didn't get what he was going for. It was very very weird stuff, uh, very different. Uh, almost experimental in that, you know, we were meeting a cast of characters called the Neo, and they were supposed to be the next evolution of, uh, you know, what what mutants are to humans, the Neo are to, to mutants, and they didn't they didn't stand out as being anything altogether special. They were just, as far as you know, just at first blush, they were just mutants. They were they were powerful, but they were just mutants, and they, their powers weren't particularly creative. Um, they didn't seem like they should really stand out compared to the X-Men, and I couldn't really buy into them as a threat. And then we met, like, the Twisted Sisters, and it's like, oh, it's just... When you, when you have Claremont come back, and I, I, I get that you don't want to be pigeonholed. If you're, if you're the guy who wrote X-Men for, what was it, 17 years, you don't want to come back and play the hits, you know? And I think that that's... I can I can respect that, but I think it's kind of wrong-headed in a way. Uh, we see with comics all the time, we have reboot after reboot after reboot. And we've got teams breaking up and coming back together. And, you know, when the dust settles, you usually go through that honeymoon phase where you do play the hits. Uh, we've seen it post-rebirth in DC. You know, the Teen Titans come back together, or the, or the you know, the new Titans come together. And they play the hits for a little while, you know. It's that's what you want. That's that's your the, your comfort food. Your the warm fuzzies. You're right there. Claremont did the exact opposite. He went against type. You know, he didn't want to. He didn't want to battle with the Sentinels or or Magneto to come do something. He wanted to do this whole new direction. And while I can respect that, I I just don't think that's what anybody wanted right then. I mean, do that stuff eventually, but. Establish the return first, I think um, Granted, I'm not a writer And uh, I'm just an idiot who forked down the money for this stuff So you could take whatever I say with uh, several shakers of salt Because I'm 
completely talking without experience here. But uh, I, I think back to the announcement that Claremont was coming back and people on, on Usenet, you know, my old stomping grounds, they were like, oh, it'd be great if Cyclops wakes up and goes, ah, oh, man, you'll never believe the dream I had. <laughs> and then as a way to wipe out the entire past, you know, decade of X-Books, which I, I when I think about that, it annoys me um, because there was that, that that's my X-Men that, that they want to rub out. And uh, I can get that that's not for everybody. And, you know, just like I'm in the in the ship now where. A lot of the stuff that's been coming out over the past decade or so hasn't been for me, but I still wouldn't want it wiped out. Um, because I, as a big believer in lore, I think you take the good and you take the bad, and you work with it as best you can, because uh, every wrinkle is an opportunity. Uh, you know, jumping back over to DC, you look at all, like the mess of Hawkman. You know, there's so many different Hawkmen, and nobody can keep the... Uh, the origin stories straight or the characterization straight and then along comes Jeff Johns and he somehow makes it work and uh, without the mess you don't have the opportunity to fix it and I think that had Claremont come back maybe played the hits maybe played into you know type for a bit then maybe cleaned up a little bit of the mess uh, you know the stuff that he didn't agree with that he did not want to work with maybe clean it up don't dismiss it but clean it up and then maybe introduce the Neo. Maybe have the Neo uh, bubbling on the back burner for a little bit, like the Claremont of old, who would do that, who would have those subplots just bubbling along, and they wouldn't, they, you know, they wouldn't come to a complete boil until he was ready to deal with them, until they were, until they were fleshed out enough to kind of, kind of support a story on their own shoulders, instead of just like, here's the Neo guys, care about them. Because they're important and they're strong. Because I look at the Neo and it's like, they could be anybody. You know, the Neo could come to my house and deliver a pizza and I wouldn't know who they were. It's just like, okay, you're these people. Not a big deal. But the uh, Claremont run didn't last terribly long. And if rumors are to be believed, uh, our part of, his run is part of the reason why Bob Harris was shown the door as editor-in-chief. Uh, back then... The X-Men movie was coming out The first X-Men movie They even changed the uh, They even changed the logo On the cover of X-Men comics To look more like the movie logo Which is really ugly <laughs> It didn't do the covers any favor But uh, Claremont was uh, Supposed to write A short story for TV Guide And uh, TV Guide had Massive circulation around the turn of the century And you know in the decades Before that so this was a huge opportunity for Marvel to get a comic into houses that wouldn't normally buy comics. And, uh, you know, even if, you know, 0.001% of them read it, liked it, and came to a comic shop, they'd be all the better off for it. Problem is, the story Claremont wrote was uh, nonsensical. <laughs> it didn't make sense to the movie going public, at which... Again, I, I can respect it because I'm not a movie guy, but this is an opportunity. And uh, even I, as you know, pig-headed I, as I can be about mixing the medias and crossing the streams, even even someone like me can see the value in that. And uh, that's what allegedly cost Bob Harris's gig, and it also led to uh, Claremont himself being shown the door when uh, Jemison Casada took over. Now, Claremont wouldn't be removed completely. 
he'd be offered his own book. And if if rumors are to be believed, then I, this is it's like a patchwork of news items that I'm trying to pull from my subconscious at this point. But uh, I think Claremont was offered the opportunity to remain on Uncanny X-Men, but he would have to defer to the new writer of X-Men stories, or they would give him his own X-Title where he could just do his own thing and not really have to worry about what the other books were doing. And he chose the latter and wound up with a book called... and, and I mean, this is 20 years ago, and I still can't believe they had a book called Extreme X-Men. X-Treem X-Men. It's just so bad. And they had they had a, a subsequent volume of it not too terribly long ago. Just so awful. So Claremont goes over there, and he is replaced by Joe Casey, the guy who really reinvented Cable. Uh, he's taking over Uncanny X-Men. And Grant Morrison comes in on X-Men, which was retitled New X-Men. And uh, the hype there was was pretty real, too. Uh, there, there were, you know, wizard specials about this. It was just uh, a very exciting time. And my Grant Morrison experience was not... I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about him. I think to that point, I might have read the first volume of Invisibles and the first volume of Doom Patrol. And I think that's all... And the first volume of Animal Man, which didn't even get into the headier Animal Man stuff. But those were all I'd read of Morrison. But uh, just the idea that he was coming over... I mean, I hadn't even read his JLA at this point. But uh was really psyched for him coming over. I just thought it was a... Uh, going to be a new opportunity for the X-Men just to be to be relevant again and to be uh, just to be different, you know? Um, they they promised that there were going to be so many changes coming on, and, uh, well, they kind of delivered. One of them did, anyway. Uh, Joe Casey came in, and that wasn't that great, uh, unfortunately. Um, his stories felt a lot like... Like a try-hard attempt at edginess, more often than not, because I we we were hyped for these first two storylines, you know. Um, like the first Joe Casey issue has Wolverine and Jean Grey making out on the cover, you know. So it was like, okay, they're they're really shaking things up here, and it was just like they were putting this alternate reality by some kid mutant who could affect reality. It was just <laughs> not great. Um, the next storyline that he had was uh, it introduced Chamber from Generation X. He came over to the main line, and there was like a pop star who was sort of in the vein of Britney Spears, but I guess like more of a train wreck than uh, that, that Britney Spears had not become yet, I guess. And it, it all came down to uh, someone called Mr. Clean taking out a bunch of mutants in the sewer. So basically, like, a, a light version of the mutant massacre. And, and, like, the whole thing was, like, him with a flamethrower. And I think uh, Ian Churchill was the artist uh, on that run. And he was still in... He was still very much a Rob Liefeld clone at this point. So, like, all the dialogue came through several hundred gritted teeth. And it just didn't... Didn't really work for me so much. Um... You know, I mentioned Chamber. Uh, Chamber came over from Generation X. That's another little bit of the X books here before uh, the big change, before the Morrison um, and uh, Casey change. They uh, they moved three of the X books into their own kind of rarefied air. You had uh, X Force. You had um, 
X-Men, and we had Generation X, and they were all handed over to uh, Warren Ellis. He was uh, called the Plot Master for the line, and uh, they they named the line Counter X, which was supposed to be a little different than the main line X books. They all got a little darker. Um, I, I'm trying to think if any of them were all that good. Uh, X-Force was kind of a letdown. That was not good. Uh, they started getting like these weird secondary mutations. Uh, Pete Wisdom came in because it's Warren Ellis, and of course, of course Pete Wisdom's going to show up. And it was just uh, not great. Not great at all. And I apologize for bouncing all over the place here. There's a lot of this is just what's coming to mind as I'm working through the timeline here. I didn't even mention that Excalibur ended uh, you know, several years before, and Nightcrawler, Kitty, and Colossus came back over to the main teams. Uh, uh, the Counter-X Generation X uh, got a lot darker. There was a, One of the students was killed in, in like a riot at the school. Um, then there was X-Men who kind of became, he went from just being like a generic dude to the mutant shaman. And that ended with him like parceling out his cells to save the world or something like that. It was kind of like weird high concept stuff that just, it didn't really hit the mark. Um, not, not the greatest stuff in the world, but, uh, anyway, with that out of the way, back to, uh, Joe Casey's X-Men, uh, very edgy, very try hard, um, I remember they did a solicit for an issue where uh, Banshee put together a crew called like the X Corps, and uh, they were all wearing basically uh, SS uniforms on this cover. And I, I you know, it's, <laughs> it is definitely something you couldn't get away with now, and it turns out you couldn't get away with it even back then. Uh, uh, it's just so like, what's the point? Like, why, why do that? Um, they, they wound up changing the outfits to something a little less incendiary, but, uh, just the, the, I don't know what you could be thinking that this is, uh, the direction you want. Uh, is that, is that the hill you want to die on? <laughs> really? Putting Banshee in a Nazi outfit? Come on. But, uh, he, I remember Uncanny X-Men number 400 and thinking that I was so excited when Uncanny X-Men 300 came out because it was, you know, a piece of history. And had the big sparkly cover, and Nightcrawler showed up, and the Legacy Virus was established, and a lot of cool stuff happened in that issue. And then, looking at Uncanny X-Men 400, it was drawn by Ashley Wood, who, uh, if you don't know Ashley Wood, um, he did uh, Automatic Kafka with Joe Casey over at Image, and he has a very unique art style that works for... The more esoteric stories and maybe the more experimental stories, but for a landmark issue of Uncanny X-Men, not the greatest fit. <laughs> really not the greatest fit. It really took the wind out of my sail seeing that as uh, Uncanny X-Men number 400, but at this point in time, Marvel was trying to go against type, you know, maybe not doing the big, you know, blustery anniversary issues anymore, which I'll give them credit for, you know, changing course, but uh, at the same time, uh, you, you miss those niceties, I guess, uh, when you when you can afford them, I suppose, but uh, across the table, we had New X-Men with Grant Morrison, which really delivered for me. Uh, I thought it was some of my very favorite uh, X-Men work that I've, that I've read, and I own that, that whole run like three or four different ways. I've got like trades, digests, omnibus, single issues, it really is one of my very favorites, um, and and it used to be one of those comfort foods that I would revisit every now and again. It's uh, 
if you haven't read it, it's a heck of a story, and at the risk of spoiling it, um, <laughs> I uh, I went to the comic shop the day that a big reveal, the big reveal of the Grant Morrison run happened. Uh, I'm gonna try not to spoil it here. <laughs> and uh, there was a character named Zorn, who uh, wasn't quite what uh, what he was made out to be. And I went into the comic shop to buy the issue where it was all revealed, and the guy behind the counter told me exactly what happened. He's like, "Could you believe this?" And I'm like, "I haven't read it yet. You're holding my copy. How do you? How, how would I know what you're talking about? You have the book that I'm supposed to be reading." And uh, I wound up getting the issue for free because he felt so bad. But at the same time, I really wish I could have uh, experienced that fresh because. Boy, it, lo- it lost a lot of its impact Seeing it coming But that was like classic Classic Morrison writing Where if you know The big reveal And you go back and you read the story again So many things stick out And uh, it, it's just a real testament To his writing And, and I'm, again, I'm trying not to ruin it For anybody who hasn't read it yet I'm, I'm sure anybody listening to this probably knows it But uh, on the off chance you don't I, I don't want to be the one that ruins it for you Now outside the three core books uh, There were still a whole bunch of uh, you know tie-in books And ex-family books You had things like The Exiles Which brought Blink back And they did this uh, sort of quantum leap or sliders gimmick Where she and this team of uh, alternate dimension mutants Would bounce from dimension to dimension To right wrongs and all that good stuff um, the Brotherhood Now that's one that we talked about on the Cosmic Treadmill Which was written by the enigmatic X Who was uh, Howard Mackey But uh, that was uh, that was something um, They brought back uh, the New Mutants uh, They did this this weird like manga-influenced imprint at Marvel called Tsunami And, and it was like a lot of uh, strange concepts Like there was a Human Torch uh, solo series uh, the Runaways came from there. Um, Namor like got this like really strange series where he was like a a young kid. Uh, I'm I'm sure it was a flashback series, uh, and that was written by uh, Bill Jemis, as a matter of fact. The first few issues, but uh, in the X Family, we had things like Mystique. Mystique got her own series. Emma Frost got her own series. There was another volume of New Mutants. Uh, there was a book called Sentinel. Which uh, featured a kid and his pet sentinel Which was actually a lot better than I'm making it sound Very tangentially uh, related to the X-Men But as a zombie, I was still buying all of them Other books in the line were uh, You know, Cable turned into Soldier X Deadpool turned into Agent X And X-Force turned into Ecstatics. And I remember there was a little bit of a weirdness around this time Because people were like almost... They were betting that this was all about keeping royalties out of Rob Liefeld's pocket because of his, uh, his, uh, you know, his claim, his ability to say he, you know, co-created Cable and Deadpool and even X Force. I, I don't know how true that is. I never really looked into it. I just remember that was the prevailing wisdom on Usenet at the time <laughs> that these changes were all in service of uh, taking some money out of Liefeld's pocket, who I guess was. Uh, uh, on the outs with Marvel And, you know, I guess you can flip a coin With Liefeld to see who he's on the outs with Is he, is he on the outs with DC? Heads yes, tails no, you know Now, before we get into Grant Morrison leaving uh, Joe Casey left first And he was replaced by 
everyone's favorite, Chuck Austin. Now, uh, Chuck Austin, I, I don't quite have the same knee-jerk hatred for him as a lot of people seem to. Um, I will say that uh, I, I didn't really care for his run all that much. I, I, but I'm, but I mean, I've read a lot of bad comics in my time. Uh, <laughs> this was just more of that. I will say, I think it was weird how Marvel kind of just hitched their wagon to him the way they did. Uh, Marvel seems to do that a lot. Um, just a few years ago, it seemed like every time I turned around, it was announced that, like, Cullen Bunn got a new book. And, and like, you look at previews, and it's like, an entire page of Cullen Bunn? What, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's like, who's asking for this? Now, I mean, I'm just dipping my toe back into Marvel, but it seems like every single house ad features a book written by someone called Jim Zub. Or J- I don't know who that is, but it seems like, it seems like they're writing almost everything at Marvel. So I, I don't know why they do that sometimes. Uh, they did it here with Austin. It seemed like every time a, a book was getting a new creative team, Chuck Austin was part of it. He, uh, you know, he was on the Avengers. He was on War Machine. He was on Captain America. He's on X-Men. It, every time you turned around, Chuck he was on Ultimate X-Men. Every time you turned around, Chuck Austin was getting a book, and uh, none of them were all that great. <laughs> this is the run that... Uh, where it came out that Nightcrawler was, you know, the son of Draco the Devil or whatever. Maybe it was the actual Satan. It's been forever since I've read it. Um, this was also the run that features She-Hulk and Juggernaut doing it. Um, also, uh, Arch- or Angel and Husk, who I want to say was still a teenager, uh, banging in the sky above her parents. Um, not great. Not great at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, we went from the Joe Casey run with, you know, SS outfits and and a mutant prostitute servicing Bill Clinton to all this other weird and wacky stuff from Chuck Austin. And uh, not great. <laughs> not great. It's just a good thing that we had uh, new X-Men, the, uh, the Morrison stuff that was just really doing its damnedest to keep the quality level as high as it was. And even Extreme X-Men with Claremont wasn't bad at all. Um, It wasn't really a standout, but it wasn't offensively bad. There were some extremely long storylines in that book. I do remember that. It felt like like some of the storylines would just never end. And uh, I think Igor Cordy came on to do art. He was doing a lot of fill-in art at the time because uh, uh, Morrison was paired with Frank Quitely, who can't do, you know, monthly books at his, uh, and keep up his rate of quality. So Igor Cordy was coming in to pinch hit, and, uh, eh, a little rough, but I mean, I don't know how fair that is to even say, because it seems like he was getting the call at the, you know, 11th hour. It's like, hey, we need 22 pages tomorrow, <laughs> and he did his best to, uh, to put out those 22 pages, so I don't know. But, I mean, that was a whole... That was just such an exciting era for not only the X-Men, just for Marvel overall. Uh, I think a lot of people look back at the Gemis era and kind of, like, mock it. You know, kind of, like, give it side-eye and think it's uh, think it's silly and, and, and fun to make fun of. But uh, it did so much to reinvigorate the line. Uh, it was one of those times where you, anything was possible. It was a lot of fun. Maybe a little self-indulgent. I mean, they did put out, like... Was it Joe and Bill's Amazing Journey or Excellent Adventure or some crap like that? But it was a lot of it was a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff, a lot of excitement. Uh, they launched the Ultimate line there, which 
I enjoyed at the start. <laughs> it kind of petered out, but uh, it was a very exciting time. But, uh, you know, Morrison didn't stick around forever. He did leave, and uh, I think it was kind of an acrimonious uh, breakup with he and Marvel. Uh, allegedly, Joe Casada didn't even know he was leaving until he heard it announced at Comic-Con that Morrison had signed exclusive with DC. So he was upset, and uh, rightfully so. I think that's... Uh, that's just bad, bad business to just to go behind someone's back like that and not, not at least touch base. And of course, I wasn't there, so I don't know who's telling the truth. It's probably somewhere in the middle. But uh, his void, he he left the void, of course, and uh, they shifted Chuck Austin over to New X Men, which would become just X Men again. Uh, Chris Claremont was shifted over from Extreme X-Men back to Uncanny X-Men, and then they launched a new flagship title called Astonishing X-Men, written by uh, Joss Whedon. And uh, I I don't want to sound like a contrarian, but uh, I don't see what the big deal was. I I really wanted to like it. It was one of those where I kind of felt myself get caught up in the hype. Just like I did with the Morrison Casey, uh, you know, the intro to them, but uh, this Whedon stuff didn't didn't really care for it all that much. It was okay. I, I don't I didn't hate it, but uh, I really didn't see what was so special about it, which made it what would make it stand out. Um, it might just be me. It probably is just me, <laughs> but I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was the most spectacular thing in the world, and it was like beyond delayed. Uh, they were, there was a story they were on break world for like six years. It was just, and I, I'm talking publication time. It was just, it just didn't end. And, uh, you know, they made, they made us sweat through 24 issues of this, which I think it t- took like four years to come out. And instead of paying it off in the book, they made us buy a giant size. So you had to pay like twice the damn price to get the, to get the ending to the story that we've been just waiting for for years and years and years. But, uh, yeah, not my favorite. Definitely not my favorite. Maybe I'd like it better now if I read it all in one go. I mean, that's always a possibility. But uh, at the time, it really, you know, and I kind of had a disdain for it because I felt like it was holding everything else back. I mean, you can compare it to things like Doomsday Clock uh, now, where you feel like so many things are hinging on one particular title And uh, the fact that that title Can't be bothered to come out Really just makes you feel like You're treading water everywhere else And you're you're just getting these stories that don't matter Because they're just killing time anyway But that's kind of just a comics problem, isn't it? It's not necessarily limited to Astonishing X-Men And it's uh, not wanting to come out uh, <laughs> Now this is where It's weird You think about these stories from a certain era and uh, they all kind of fall into place. You kind of can place yourself where they are, where they were. And then you get to the part of your fandom where everything just kind of starts to congeal. <laughs> everything just comes into like a glob. And I have a hard time really putting them on a timetable or a timeline here. Because uh, the next thing I can think of is Ed Brubaker coming in. And this is around the time where I uh, I was moving into a new apartment. And I was really trying to stretch my comics budget because uh, I really didn't have as much of one as I had uh, prior uh, in the old place. So I had to make some I had to make some cuts and I was still a Marvel zombie so I dropped a whole lot of DC stuff. 
and I had to keep I had to keep the Marvel habit going. So uh, even to my own you know poverty, I kept this habit going. Uh, I mean, it was a macaroni and cheese for dinner every night. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes with water instead of milk, it was pretty pathetic. But I had to uh, had to keep up the habit. And somewhere around this time, Ed Brubaker comes in, and I wasn't really reading the comics as much as I was prior. I was still buying them because I'm I've always been an idiot. But I, I remember finding out that they had uh, resolved one of the long lingering plot threads in this new Brubaker run, and uh, that was the third Summers brother. And so I, you know, tore into the books I was reading it, and I found out that yes, they did in fact pay that off, and uh, it was kind of underwhelming. Um, I was hoping it was going to be someone we knew. I was kind of hoping it was going to be, uh, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but I wanted it to be Adam X, the Extreme. I, I just thought that his story made the most sense. I know a lot of people were thinking it might be Gambit. I remember uh, Robert Weinberg, he uh, the writer. He came in to write Cable uh, before before Rob Liefeld returned. Uh, one of the times he returned, and he was uh, going to reveal, or allegedly going to reveal, that the third Summers brother was actually somehow Apocalypse. And I remember he wrote up like a little bit of a synopsis uh, that was posted on one of the X Men fan sites, or maybe it was the news groups. But the way he explained it, it actually worked. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I would have liked that, but it, the way he wrote it, I couldn't argue it because he made it actually sound like it made sense. But uh, instead, uh, Ed Brubaker revealed it to be... Uh, and this is a very creative thing he did. Uh, this was during the Deadly Genesis miniseries wherein he uh, he put, like, this weird in-between team... You know, between the original five X-Men and the giant size X-Men, he had this this little in-between team that didn't survive or didn't quite make it out of the Krakoa mission. Uh, it's very interesting stuff, uh, stuff that uh, really just forward-thinking sort of stuff, that, that there are these gaps in story that you can fill anything in if you wanted to, and if you do it creatively enough. Um, Ed Brubaker would go on to write Uncanny X-Men and... Probably write the only Shi'ar Empire story I ever really cared about <laughs> Or cared enough that While I was collecting it month to month I mean, of course, there's stuff like Dark Phoenix and stuff like that But uh, as I was reading comics and buying them month to month Anytime the X-Men would go into space I would kind of just I would kind of just glaze over And just wait for it to be over with But uh, this uh, Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire I-, I liked it quite a bit I thought it was a very good story uh, another one that I haven't read in, boy, like 15 years now, but uh, I kind of dug it. Um, now, here's where more of my you know, timetable is a little bit shifted here, because I know, uh, you know Grant Morrison did this big mutant population boom. You know, there were a lot more mutants, and uh, somehow it didn't feel so much like a gimmick. It didn't feel like it cheapened... Uh, being a mutant in the Marvel Universe It felt like it was just the next step uh, In mutant-dumb, I guess After he left, they launched another book called New X-Men Which was itself a, uh, a an evolution of the New Mutants Tsunami series Where we had just suddenly all these new mutants And uh, somehow to me that felt like a gimmick 
it really felt like it cheapened being a mutant because everyone was a mutant. And uh, not that there weren't always an overabundance of mutants in the Marvel Universe. It just This was just like, wow, there are a lot of these damn mutants. And, and you'd think that that something like House of M would be right up my alley at that point. You know, House of M where Scarlet Witch said no more mutants and uh, suddenly we were down to like 198 of them. Uh, you'd figure that'd be right up my alley, but no, I hated that too. <laughs> I hated that. Oh, that was so bad. I didn't like the House of M. I thought the story was awful. I thought the gimmick was awful. I thought the fallout was awful. I, I just really didn't like it at all. And uh, this started to like kind of spell the end for me for uh, being invested. Uh, like I said, I did stop reading some of them, but I, I would always go back and I'd catch up. And uh, after No More Mutants, I... It's, that's when the, it was like the the first big chink in the armor, you know um, And then, just a year after that Civil War happens And uh, I've said it before uh, That was the end of my Marvel zombiedom Or zombie hood <laughs> that, was, that was when I stopped buying everything Is what I'm trying to say I, <laughs> I, I hated Civil War I still hate Civil War Um it's been a long time since I've read it, and I hear that if you read it and take all the characters out of the story, it makes a better story, but I, I can't be bothered to do that. Um, I look at Civil War, and I'm a cynical guy, and I, I think of it as less about for, uh, promoting characters and more about promoting a singular writer. Because you think about Civil War, I'm not thinking about any of the heroes, I'm not thinking about any of the titles, I'm thinking about Mark Miller, and that's exactly what they wanted us to do. And that's exactly what he wanted us to do. He didn't give a rat's ass about the characters. It was all about doing something big and telling the story that he wanted to tell. And uh, that's when I, you know, came to the conclusion that if they don't care, why should I? And I think it was the first time that I realized that just how easily characterization, how you know, just how fluid characterization is, and uh, these characters can be. There's no arbiter of these characters. There's no. There's no Jim Shooter. There's no one looking out for the character's best interests. It's all about who the writer is and uh, what their grand designs are, whether or not they fit, whether or not they make sense, whether or not they're breaking a toy that no one will be able to fix ever again. They don't care. They have their name. They're going to be on the bestseller list or whatever, and Wizard will interview them. And uh, that's when I was just like, okay, I can't do this anymore. These are characters I don't even recognize. Uh, but I stuck with the X-Men. I did stick with the X-Men. I just stopped buying most of the rest of Marvel. And I mean, I don't want to go too far off on Civil War, but uh, I mean, just think of all the, all the genies that, that, they, that came out of the jar in that, uh, in that story. That one singular story. All the genies they let out of the bottles that, no matter how, how neatly and how tidily you try to stick them back in there, they never fully go back in. But back to the X-Men um, Ed Brubaker was still an uncanny uh, Matt Fraction would come on and co-write for a bit Before taking over the title himself X-Men was changed to X-Men Legacy It was Mike Carey who wrote that And that became a real top-tier book for me Because uh, it just played with uh, it played with existing things it's play, It played with the lore so much The team was moved to San Francisco under uh, Fraction uh, and later, uh, Kieran Gillen came in to uh, to finish up that run. Not my favorite stuff here. Um, 
Uh, Fraction's work has never really spoken to me. I've never really glommed on to it. Now, it's around this time that uh, Tom Brevoort is uh, doing some sort of an interview. I think he did, like, a weekly interview on uh, CBR. You know, I think they, they did some stupid hat gimmick, because he wears a hat, and that's uh, his gimmick, I guess, where he was talking, he was answering questions, and someone had asked about all the new number ones, and he kind of teased us with the fact that uh, one of the long-standing books is going to get its own new number one pretty soon, and uh, I mean, he's kind of a troll, uh, so I think a lot of people thought maybe he's just, you know, needling the fans, but uh, no, we get a storyline called Schism, and... uh, Uncanny X-Men gets cancelled Of course it still comes out the following month Just with a new number one I remember we were promised That this uh, A had nothing to do with the new 52 And uh, (laughs) 2 Was not a gimmick This was this was a uh, needed reboot. This was uh, this was all going to make sense, and this was not being done as a sales gimmick. I mean, they were full of it on on probably both ends of that. Uh, Schism basically had Wolverine and Cyclops coming to blows over the direction of the X Men, and uh, from this sprung Uncanny X Men Volume Two and a book called Wolverine and the X Men. So Wolverine had his team of X Men, and they had. they had went back to New York, and uh, they had the Gene Gray school, because uh, Gene was dead at this time. Scott had his own deal. I want to say they were on that island utopia, and uh, I think they called his team like the Extinction Team or something like that. I don't remember what it was, but they, they, weren't, uh, they weren't simpatico with each other at this point. And uh, we were promised, you know, this isn't a gimmick. <laughs> this is a, a natural and organic reboot, which, you know, when... When you cancel and reboot for a second time just a year later, maybe it's a gimmick, you know? <laughs> maybe it's a gimmick. And I remember when this was announced, I thought back to all the times in X-Men history that a new number one front candy X-Men would have made more sense. And I came up with a handful of them. You know, I felt like following Giant Size, they could have easily done a new number one instead of jumping into number 94 or whatever it was. Uh, when Claremont left, or the issue two, 281 could have been a new number one. Uh, after the Age of Apocalypse could have been a new number one. After Onslaught could have been a new number one. There were just so many times where a new number one would have made more sense than it did after Schism. Uh, and again, like I said, they, they canceled it again uh, just a little over a year later to, to do another new volume. And uh, that stuff just bugs me. That <laughs> bugs me so much. I'm trying to think here, because this is where everything, like I said, it's all nebulous here, because it's just, the numbers are different now. So it's like I can't really go through my mind here and pinpoint where where my mind was at a certain number, because everything's number one now. I know one issue, one number one of Uncanny X-Men started with like three or four pages of Maria Hill of S.H.I.E.L.D., and it's like, this is really an Uncanny X-Men book? This is a book that I'm paying money to read? S.H.I.E.L.D. is everywhere here. Uh, and it just the reboots just didn't stop coming. I think by this point we've had like two subsequent volumes of X-Force. Uh, X-Factor was back. We had Uncanny X-Force. Um, we went through a few, a few big blowout uh, crossovers where... The No More Mutants thing was kind of reversed, and we had a new mutant birth, and that led to its own title. We had Generation Hope. 
it just uh, so many books <laughs> just so many damn books I think we got another New Mutant somewhere in here. We had Avengers Academy, which started having some X-Men characters in it. It was just wild stuff here. And uh, I think the next big story here, if I'm, if this is all making sense in my head, which it very well might not be, was Avengers versus X-Men, which uh, I was a little nervous about going into because I thought that the whole thing was built on the Phoenix coming back. And, uh, you know, the Phoenix's whole gimmick is, you know, death and rebirth And there was a little bit of a hinting in, uh, I think it was Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four run about, about a universe ending, a universe closing And I'm thinking, oh man, the Phoenix is going to come, going to wipe everything out And we're going to be reborn into a new Marvel Universe Because this is just a year after the New 52 And I'm thinking, this is just, uh, we're, we're just being teased with the uh, Reboot and relaunch uh, rumors over and over again It felt like every year uh, We were being kind of taunted With the concept that Everything we know is going away And that's that's not a good place to be As a uh, consumer or as a fan Or as a passionate uh, passerby, I guess Or a onlooker you, you just don't know what to invest in You don't know what's worth your time Or if anything's worth your time anymore And then you spend more time worrying about losing everything That you can't even enjoy what you have And uh, that's kind of the position I was in Especially going into this Avengers vs. X-Men And uh, this was being written by the Architects This is in the era of the Marvel Architects Which is a whole thing that I didn't like either I wasn't a big fan of that because when I, when I think of architects, uh, just as a concept in in fiction, I think about people who give and and who build new for something, you know? And I'm looking at the, uh, the architects we have here, and none of them have contributed a single new character, a single new non-derivative character to Marvel, and yet they're going to dictate the direction of everything. That kind of got under my skin. Uh, as I think... You know, like, Brian Bendis gave us Jessica Jones, but he only did that because it was supposed to be Jessica Drew, and they told him no. So it's like, there's just no new characters, no new non-derivative characters, and they're being given the keys to the castle here. So I didn't like that era so much, and uh, the fact that they were going to be writing Avengers vs. X-Men, which I feared was going to end with a reboot of the universe, really got under my skin. I was not cool with that. Um... I also didn't like how the X-Men were jobbed out uh, The Avengers were like the big thing And uh, the X-Men were an afterthought You know, Marvel didn't have the movie rights So the X-Men are an afterthought And it was just very unfortunate uh, I didn't really like how a lot of the members of the team were uh, depicted there uh, They turned Cyclops into like a megalomaniac They had uh, Wol uh, Wolverine and Beast were siding with the Avengers over the X-Men I, I just really didn't, didn't, didn't sit right with me um, that ended with the Phoenix coming back, uh, splitting its power between, like, Namor, Colossus, Magic, Emma Frost, and Cyclops. Cyclops winds up killing Professor Xavier. It's, uh... And, and, you know, at this point, it's like, all these characters have died so many times and have come back so many times, it's so hard to care. I think, uh, after this, Uncanny X-Men was, uh, canceled again. <laughs> and given a new number one. Maybe, maybe two more new number ones, uh... uh in the years that followed this Such a disaster um, They brought the uh, They brought the original five back Which was a cool idea um, 
the uh, the concept of bringing of snapping the the original five out of the '60s and dropping them into the present day so they could see how uh, Cyclops had gone off the rails. An interesting idea. Um, I don't like the execution. I don't like it as an extended storyline because the kids really overstayed their welcome. And uh, I, I don't like Beast being the uh, the engineer of it because I, I would think that he would be a little bit smarter than to really mess with the timeline and do something like that. But this marked uh, Brian Michael Bendis' entry into the X-Universe, which, man, I was worried about it. <laughs> I talked about this during our Superman discussion a few weeks ago. Um... I'm okay with Bendis being, you know, playing in the sandbox, playing in the universe, but when he starts focusing on something I care about, I, or I, I'm very passionate about, I get, I get a little nervous, and uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of his run on any of his ex-work, but he carried it along up until uh, Secret Wars, uh, the new, even worse, Secret Wars. And I'm trying to think here, because I know I read Secret Wars, and I also read Inhumans vs. X-Men, the IVX series, which was another one I hated because it uh, marginalized the X-Men even more and tried to put the Inhumans in the forefront, uh, despite the fact that nobody, nobody cares about the Inhumans. And uh, how many times have they tried launching an Inhuman series, or several Inhuman series over the past decade? And they never last. I mean, they're just they're just a boring concept. Uh, to think that that was going to, you know, take over for the mutants in the in the Marvel movies or whatever. I I just can't see the logic in it. I don't see. I I, I think they suck. <laughs> they're just not interesting in the slightest. But uh, with Secret Wars is when I checked out. Um, and it all comes down to like the last page in the first issue where. Uh, they let, well, the guy who's writing X-Men now, Jonathan Hickman, write, like, the epitaph for the Marvel Universe, or the tombstone for the Marvel Universe. It was, like, Marvel Universe 1961 to 2015, or whatever it was. And, and the fact that they, like I said earlier about the architects, these guys have given nothing back in, in as far as properties. And, and I can understand keeping your ideas for your creator-owned stuff, but uh, I don't know, I, I feel like... If you're going to be the one to write the tombstone, you need to have a little bit more skin in the game. And perhaps I'm, you know, projecting, perhaps I'm being unfair. I, I, I accept all those possibilities. That I've never been in a position to, uh, to do such a thing, and uh, I've never been offered an opportunity to do such a thing. So uh, I'm probably talking out of turn here. It's a very good possibility. It happens, uh, happens sometimes. But this is when I stopped reading uh, the X-Men books. I still buy them. Because, uh, it's, you know, that's my M.O. <laughs> I still buy things when I don't read them. Um, I took an extended break. Uh, probably the better part of a year because Secret Wars put everything on hold. Um, there were all those weird miniseries. Like, there was like an Extinction Agenda one, I think. Maybe like the fifth or sixth stab at the Age of Apocalypse was in there somewhere. A lot of those weird miniseries that didn't do anything for me. Um... And then I started collecting the, you know, the color books, the gold and, and the blue. But I didn't read them until uh, well over a year later. And I, I tried reading them, and I couldn't do it. I just These were characters I didn't really recognize anymore. And it was time for me to officially stop. And so I actually took them off my uh, my DCBS list. Uh, 
I did so way, way, way too late, but uh, I took them off the list, and for the first time in like 30 years, I didn't have any, I wasn't buying any X-Men books, which was kind of heartbreaking. Um, it was one of those, you know, lose sleep situations, and uh, that's where it sat until just a few weeks ago. I was done, and it's weird because, you know, yeah, in our little comics bubble here, you kind of have to be, uh, you have to be careful when you say you left. Uh, when you, Like when I say I left, re- stopped reading Marvel comics in like 2015, 2016, it's really easy for someone who doesn't know me to like oversimplify that and just assume I'm one of those, uh, you know, anti-diversity kooks, you know, because it's easy to marginalize and uh, assume, especially with this time frame. And I assure you that's not the case. Uh, I am far too passionate about these characters and these comics and these universes that I, I, I wouldn't be swayed by something quite as petty as that. I, I, I adhere to lore, uh, whether it's stuff that I, I like, whether it's stuff I don't like, if it's something I enjoyed reading, something I didn't enjoy reading, I accept all of it because it's all part of this uh, of these universes. And, uh, I mean, think about your, your own real life. There's a lot of our experiences that were great, and we also have a lot of bad experiences. And uh, at the end of the day, they, you know, they're all part of you. They make you complete, and uh, you need them both to, uh, to appreciate the other, you know, you need the bad in order to, to appreciate the good, and uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. Uh, I, I'm kind of in this fog with the current year X-Men books, where I'm kind of getting my footing, but I still don't really understand a heck of a lot of it, and it's it's kind of fun in a way because it's for the first time in a long time I'm a new reader, and as seasoned uh, comics enthusiasts as we are, it's weird and rare. To be in that situation where you are a new reader and you're experiencing things for the first time all over again, it's it's a weird thing that we're, it's a weird opportunity that we're afforded in that in that respect. It's uh it's fun, and I'm looking forward to doing you know all my homework to <laughs> to catch up, and be current and uh, just move forward with the, uh, you know this is this is my team. These are my guys. Uh, if I think about comics, it's. It's going to be the X-Men. I, I tried talking myself out of that over the past several years, but yeah, some things you just can't fight, I guess, you know? Um, I think a lot of folks who are listening to this right now probably see me uh, more as a, as a DC guy, and that's a, that was a calculated thing, you know? I, I do love DC Comics, and uh, for the past several years I have preferred them to Marvel Comics, but... Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I, I came in with Marvel and the X-Men, and uh, they're always going to be a part of me, and they're always going to, no matter if I'm reading them or not, they're always going to be tempting me to, you know, hit that end of the comics alphabet. And I think that's uh, probably all the time here's a waste today. Uh, I apologize if this was all over the place. It very well might have been. I didn't do this with a script. It was just... Uh, Stream of consciousness uh, being spewed into a microphone via my raspy, allergy-riddled vocal cords. So uh, if I do sound like uh, like I'm goggling rocks, or if I sound like Peter Brady, now you know why. <laughs> it's we're in that uh, weird like three days of the year where we actually get fall here in Arizona. So that's when my allergies decide they want to kick in. So that's where I'm at. But uh, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, this rambling uh, mess of a uh, walk down memory lane. And uh, 
I'm really looking forward to sharing this next project with uh, with you all real soon. This is, uh, I think this is going to be pretty cool. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's a big time passion project that I've wanted to do for a very long time now, and uh, finally going to pull the trigger. And I, I hope it's uh, fun for everybody. And uh, if you'd ever like to reach out and talk X-Men or anything with me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter. I'm, I'm there pretty much every day, at least for a little while. So, uh, you could probably find me there best of all. Uh, you can hit us up at uh, chrisandreggie.com. Also, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. But I think that's all I got for today. So I want to thank you so, so much for hanging out. I really appreciate it. Uh, more than you guys know. I'm, <laughs> I can say that with a, a great deal of confidence. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you all listening uh, more than you'll ever know. So, so long for now. I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.